and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 22nd of September with me, Ian Welsh. The Innovation Forum team are off to Amsterdam in a couple of weeks for this year's Future of Plastics and Packaging conference. By way of preview, coming up are some comments from event panellists, reflecting on conversations from the conference and focusing in particular on how business can build packaging solutions that deliver impact at scale. And we have the next in our series of Farmer Voice interviews. Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson recently spoke with Wakenya Samuel, a coffee farmer from the Bashika Integrated Area Cooperative Enterprise in Uganda. They talked about climate change impacts, agroforestry, and how farmers can best be supported to ensure sustainable supply security. That's all to come. First, though, is a regular roundup of some sustainable business news. coincide with New York Climate Week and the UN General Assembly was ironic timing for the announcement by UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak of his plans to roll back on a number of key environmental policies. The UK government has for long boasted about its international leadership in tackling climate change and ambition in its 2030 and 2050 emissions and net zero planning. On the face of it, this seems to no longer be the priority that it was. Sunak announced that a ban on new petrol and diesel cars will be pushed back five years to 2035. Targets for phasing out fossil fuel-powered heating and energy efficiencies are to be weakened. The announcements have been hit with a storm of protests from business groups, politicians from across political parties, international leaders and environmental groups. UK Green MP Caroline Lucas commented that the government's proposals had had the unprecedented achievement of uniting green activists and car manufacturers. Industry representatives were quick to condemn the government U-turn as simply causing uncertainty. Across business sectors, companies have been working towards decarbonising at the timetable the government had put in place. The automotive sector, for example, had invested huge sums on the basis of all-electric new vehicles by the end of the decade. The UK government's official climate advisors, the Climate Change Committee, has said that the UK had not been on track to meet its commitments and that these changes will take the country further away from the necessary pathway. Consumer concerns around corporate environmental claims and potential greenwashing will be countered in the EU by new rules on sustainability claims for products. The European Commission announced its intention to bring in tight anti-greenwashing regulation last year, and the new rules have been agreed following consultations involving EU member states and the European Parliament. The measures will come into effect in 2026. Among them will be a ban on climate-neutral claims for products if this involves impact offsetting. Other environmental claims and the use of prefixes such as eco will have to be backed up by evidence. The regulations will also require product lifetimes to be included on labelling. The future risks for investment in the plastic sector have been well documented, but new research from Planet Tracker into 39 big plastics companies finds that most do not link executive pay to sustainability metrics. The Plastics Executive Compensation Report calls for performance-related pay, sustainability being a key metric, and for the two to be linked. While all the companies have sustainability policies, less than half have science-based targets. Planet Tracker says that there is too much reliance on downstream solutions to the plastic pollution problem, such as reuse, refill and recycle. Moreover, focus on just recycling is described as an implausible strategy. Instead, a credible transition to lower corporate risk should involve more upstream solutions replacing fossil fuel-based feedstocks. New York Climate Week has seen the typical combination of lots of talk and some new interesting innovation and initiatives. One such launch was of the Equitable Earth Coalition by founding members of the People's Forest Partnership. This new coalition aims to work with indigenous peoples, local communities and government in developing economies to drive finance directly to communities to halt deforestation and to protect biodiversity. It will achieve this through developing a new voluntary carbon market standard and platform. These will be developed in partnership with communities to deliver transformative finance to fund their development priorities. The coalition says that the new standard will be based on transparency and rigorous due diligence in measuring carbon, societal and biodiversity impacts. It will be designed to nest international forest carbon programmes that contribute to global climate commitments and it will be holistic by driving investment both to stop deforestation and to preserve and restore forest ecosystems. 
During Innovation Forum's 2022 Future of Plastics and Packaging event in Amsterdam, I was delighted to speak with some of the expert participants. Coming up are Jody Roussel from Nestle, Camille Stephanie and Sophie Vergut from Eastman, Trivium Packaging's Jenny Bassinar, and Christina Nixon from the Environmental Investigation Agency. First, though, is Ignacio Gavilan, who, when we spoke, was at the Consumer Goods Forum. I'm at the Future of Plastics and Packaging conference in Amsterdam and joining me now is Ignacio Gavilan, who's Director of Sustainability at the Consumer Goods Forum. Ignacio, when you started your session just now, you talked about the CGF being a collective action for positive change. So what are you doing in that regard on plastics and packaging? Basically, we started this journey back in 2017 when we committed to Ellen MacArthur Foundation and the Plastics Economy Global Commitment. So in support of that, we created a coalition of action that has now about 40 companies between retailers and manufacturers, some of the top brands. In essence, what we did is create three work streams. And in this particular order, because we believe it's the right one, the first is the fundamental redesign of plastic packaging, the second is EPR, the third is chemical recycling. So on the fundamental redesign of plastic packaging, we created nine golden design rules that go from PET to HDPE, everything that you can find in a supermarket. And these are relatively simple things like removing pigments, like removing headspace, eliminated unnecessary plastic packaging in those products where we can. So I believe most members welcome that, it's good guidance, it's been benchmarked, so members are implementing this in support again of the Alan MacArthur Foundation uh, Global Commitment. Second one, EPR, obviously we need good systems in place for collection, for sorting and recycling. We do have a nice paper out with seven principles on what good or optimal EPR will look like. And we're advocating, or the companies are advocating for those in different geographies. We prioritize North America, Canada, US, then EU and UK, and also Vietnam and Indonesia. And the third element of all of this is chemical recycling. So we believe it's the only possible solution for hard to recycle plastic today. 99% of what gets recycled today is mechanical recycling and it can coexist. So there has to be complementarity of the two systems. We want mechanical to continue, we want mechanical to scale up, but we also need capacity when it comes to chemical recycling because all the flexible material is now ending in incinerators or even worse, the environment. And there certainly are some interesting <coughs> chemical recycling solutions coming on the market. Something you said earlier I thought was really interesting, you said there needs to be a realisation that we can't recycle our way out of the problem. Had there been a danger of that being a mindset that people had been it was too, was too prevalent. The people were thinking, right, we'll just recycle our way out and then no problem. That's why I purposely started with the fundamental redesign of plastic packaging. We don't want recycling to be the only solution. So it has to start with a reduction of virgin material and uh, making our plastic packaging more efficient and then chemical recycling. So Great. Well, thanks. That's been made it very clear. Thank you, Ignacio Gavilan from the Consumer Goods Forum. Thank you so much, Ian. Joining me now is Jodie Roussel, Global Public Affairs Lead for Packaging and Sustainability with Nestle. Welcome Jodie. Thank you Ian. We were just talking on a panel looking at legislation as an opportunity and what business can do to utilise regulation to drive effective action. From Nestle's perspective, how are you using regulation to drive action? To put it into context, the food and beverage industry is a regulated industry. And this regulation ensures a level playing field, fair distribution of responsibilities and 
also the opportunity for a sharing of responsibilities, particularly in the scope of EPR fees and other types of legislation. Now, Nestle is a company that thrives on good regulation, and we see it as a tool to enable action by an entire industry, not just first movers, for everyone to get involved making the systems changes that we see are necessary for the future. When we look at driving regulation further and faster, I'll give you a snapshot of the current state of regulation. We are observing both national laws being developed as well as some draft laws. So in the case of EPR, there are 58 national laws in place today, 37 in draft. For reuse and refill, 18 national laws in place, 6 in draft. For deposit return, 31 national laws and 22 in draft form. If you add those in addition to laws that have been passed but have not yet been implemented, we actually see a tremendous amount of action happening at the national level and sometimes also at the local level to support a new infrastructure that will enable the management, collection, sorting, and recycling or reuse of post-consumer packaging. EPR, of course, being extended producer responsibility. Bring that in mind, what do you think that good regulation should look like? At Nestle, we've taken a lot of voluntary actions that can show the way forward for good regulation. Um, some we do on our own, such as our negative list, identifying voluntary materials that we've identified to phase out. The Consumer Goods Forum's Golden Design Rules, of which we're a partner and we're also working to implement, supporting norms for paper recyclability or sustainable sourcing. We also support, in addition to extended producer responsibility and deposit return schemes, we're a strong supporter of the movement forward to negotiate a UN treaty on plastics to ensure all material is collected and sorted and recycled. Many countries today lack formalized collection and sorting systems. And we know that there are deliberate choices coming up on the horizon for policymakers to make. We see them really as playing the role of framing a canvas. And then we businesses can come and paint the picture on that canvas based on the framework that they build. And those are based on societal objectives. In terms of the UN treaty and the opportunity that this presents to us, we've supported a, a coalition being developed, the Business Coalition for a Global Plastics Treaty, which is a group of businesses forming to support comprehensive action on the full life cycle of plastics by regulators. This is facilitated by the World Wildlife Federation and also the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. We see in the future, in the near term, a lot of discussion on national action plans that will take place following the treaty. We need leadership action to support the changes that a treaty can create in a system moving to a future where we produce what we can collect and recycle, where we manage the collection and reuse or recycling of materials, and we're also looking at how legacy waste can be cleaned up to prevent any pollution of the environment. But the benefits for business are tremendous if we have such a treaty in the future and national action plans, the ability to plan product and factory investments, clear direction from governments about the roadmap ahead for materials use and industrial priorities, as well as potentially harmonizing standards and metrics so we can create economies of scale as we look to the materials of the future. There's no doubt that the possibility of a global plastic treaty is really exciting and there will be a number of opportunities will spring from it, no doubt, as well as the inevitable challenges. Uh, Jody Roussel from Nestle, thanks for taking us through some of them and thanks for your time today. Thank you, Ian. Joining me now are Camille Stefani, Sustainability Manager, and Sophie Verhoot, Strategic Initiatives Manager for the Circular Economy, EMEA at Eastman. Welcome to you both. We have just in a session looking at recycling infrastructure and particularly looking at your technology. Camille, why don't you give us an introduction to what it is that Eastman are doing? So Eastman is a materials innovation company and we are basically pivoting our strategy of using fossil-based 
feedstocks to using plastic waste as a feedstock to make our existing product lines. We have a process called polyester renewal technology where we are basically taking hard to recycle polyester waste which would otherwise end up in incineration or in landfills and we are taking that, depolymerizing that and using those building blocks again to build up the same plastics, the same polyesters. And the great thing about this is that it's complementary to mechanical recycling because we can take stuff that they cannot use and we are actually making a virgin quality, food grade quality product out of that. We last year announced to invest in a facility in our headquarters in Kingsport in Tennessee where we are building a 100 kiloton methanolysis process in front of our existing production assets. And actually earlier this year, we announced together with President Macron in France that we are investing up to 1 billion US dollars to build the world's largest molecular recycling facility in France using that polyester renewal technology. And Sophie, what's the scalability of the process? To let our technology flourish, to let it do what we would like it to do at scale, we need three crucial things. Uh, first one is a legislative framework which is clear, which is harmonized and which is hopefully common sense based uh, to ensure us a long-term license to operate. Second point is collaboration across the value chain. So we are very open to engage with all different kind of stakeholders who are part of the debate. And third one is better infrastructure. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest bottlenecks that we are currently facing. So we need to have better infrastructure in order to better sort, better collect and do further processing of the waste. I think there's more than waste enough, but we would like to use it for different streams, for different recycling technologies. Those are what, that's what will facilitate scale, but what is the ultimate ambition? How big can this process be, do you think? Yeah, I think chemical recycling will have a specific part in the waste hierarchy. Yeah? So, of course, we are completely agree with reduce, reuse, refill, repair, mechanical recycling. And we are kind of the, the last resort, but I think an important last resort. Uh, and we would be very happy if when our facility is built within a few years that it can work starting from the beginning at the fullest potential and so consume the 160,000 tons of polyester waste from Europe. It certainly feels that there's been an acceptance in the room here today that chemical recycling, which has had its detractors in the past, but it does feel that um, there's an acceptance that it is part of the overall solution to dealing with plastic waste and that we need innovation and exciting ideas, much like yours, to help solve the problem. For now, thank you very much to Camille and Sophie from Eastman. Thank you. And I'm with Jenny Wassayar, CSO of Trivium Packaging. And we've just been having a discussion in the session looking at material dilemmas, how to navigate conflicting data points and avoid unintended consequences. Now, Jenny, as well as being CSO at Trivium Packaging, you're also, you've been leading on a World Business Council for Sustainable Development project around the packaging of the future. So tell me a bit about that. Of course, one of the things that you have to look at when you look at sustainability in packaging is not only a one-way street. We cannot make packaging decisions on only one tool or one process. So that's why we came together with the World Business Council Sustainable Development and investigated the areas that we think are mostly of concern when you look at packaging, so that we look beyond only, say, life cycle assessment, but look more of a holistic approach towards sustainability in packaging. And we've identified through a member consultation process around six areas of major concern, or at least areas that you should check when you're developing new materials. The framework that we developed is sort of a wheel that can guide you to making more prominent packaging decisions. So the six areas that we think are very important are carbon footprint, of course, so life cycle assessment, still very important. Then also material efficiency, circularity, optimized end of life, 
harmful substances and finally biodiversity. So it's looking beyond standard tools or one tool, but just taking into account multiple areas to make your packaging decision. Now you mentioned something in the session, how in your view we need to get a beyond thinking just about life cycle assessment. Yeah. Why is that? I know you've got quite strong views on this, but tell us why you really think that we are focusing too much on life cycle assessments. Yeah, I think a life cycle assessment gives you a very good indication of the direction of your sustainability footprint or credential of your product. However, it's certainly not taking into account everything yet. I always say these tools, they were developed, or at least the basics for these tools were developed in the last century. So if we just lean on that when the world was still thinking linear, and while we're now currently in a circular economy, there are still a mismatch between what we actually want for the future and what we're leaning on at the moment. So one of the things that we should do is uh, these life cycle assessment, take them as a standard, as a basics. I'm, I'm not saying that you should totally forget about them, but you have to take into account that life cycle assessments can be completely different from tool to tool. And also, even if they are all ISO certified, for example, they can still come up with different numbers. So you always, as a packaging engineer, you always have to make your own decision based on your tool and create reliable comparisons. One of the things that I think it might be missing in life cycle assessment is certainly the circularity part that is not fully taken into account. So if you have materials that are infinitely recyclable, so cradle to cradle is not taken into account. And I think that's a strong miss. Another one is that if you look at the end of life area that I'm personally very passionate about because I want to make sure that we do not pollute the earth, that we keep materials in the loop. That is also not strongly, I say that, calculated through a life cycle assessment that can be improved. It's a very interesting way and clearly a much better way as we go forward looking at the impacts of materials and also making material choices. Just tell our, read our listeners, where can they find more information about the new framework that you developed with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development? So the World Business Council Sustainable Development developed a packaging framework, it's called Sphere. Yep. Uh, and it's available on the website, so if you just type in Sphere, the packaging sustainability framework, you will find it. There's also some interesting business cases that we've built on it already, together for example with Microsoft, where we did some comparisons already for one of their packages to show how you can actually implement this framework in your decision-making processes. Great, very much worth taking a look. We'll try and include a link to that in the podcast description. But Jenny from Trivium Packaging, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Ian. Joining me just now is Christina Dixon, Ocean Camping Lead with the Environment Investigation Agency. Welcome to the conference. Thank you. We've just been on a session looking at legislation as an opportunity and how business can utilise incoming regulation to drive effective action. From your perspective, what can business do to influence policy effectively? Yeah, it's a really good question because we do a lot of work at the Environmental Investigation Agency collecting evidence. So from, that's both from field investigations, but also from analysis, desktop research, and also generally engaging with, for example, companies to look at things like, in this context, like the plastic footprint, um, progress towards targets. And one of the things that keeps coming up is what is the relationship between company action and policy? You sort of can't have one without the other. Companies face a real risk if they want to set up a new infrastructure or a solution to plastic pollution. If they're not bringing the whole sector with them or if they don't have a kind of enabling policy environment which can help drive that action. For example, like policy frameworks can stimulate things like investment. So there's a benefit to companies to having regulation in some context. So this kind of comes up quite a lot. 
And our work, for example, with UK retailers involves looking at the plastic footprint, looking at progress towards plastic reduction, but then also looking at what's really missing in policymaking. And something that we've really taken away from our work over the past sort of three or four years looking at that is, first of all, using the kind of experience of the retailers and the FMCGs that we work with to inform our recommendations, like when the UK or the EU is revising different regulations. So at the moment, the Packaging and Packaging Waste Directive, the Waste Shipment Regulation, and the Environment Act targets, for example, in the UK, using that information to inform that process, but also really encouraging the businesses themselves to be ambassadors, essentially to be lobbyists. And of course, they're often working through associations to inform policy processes as well. And there's a lot out there that suggests nefarious um, ambitions, I guess, of companies to greenwash or uh, deliberately lobby against legislation in certain markets. Obviously not in favour of that, but what we are in favour of is bringing that experience and taking it into the policy making space and so working collaboratively to have essentially champions within the sector. And not all companies are going to want to be doing the most ambitious thing, but there are companies that are actually, you know, they're very forward thinking, they've got a vision, but they lack the investment and the kind of sectoral support to be driving change. So in the global treaty space, for example, we've seen a number of of um, FMCGs actually really come out and attend the negotiations and these are like multi-day quite dry negotiations about plastics policy but FMCGs like Nestle, Unilever saying you know actually we think this is so important because this is going to be the enabling piece of legislation which transforms the plastic economy for generations to come and we actually should be there and we should not just be represented by for example plastic producers who also are out in force lobbying around the plastics treaty but there's a real difference in ambition between the different elements of the plastic value chain and so it's really important that those perspectives are heard when it comes to, to policy making particularly at the global level I would say. And I guess it's the point here is to mind, try and make sure that the companies that are being progressive and want to make and implement the change necessary are involved and then the others that perhaps are looking more to the short term are brought along with the regulation. Exactly because currently we exist in an environment where companies are potentially competitively really disadvantaged by trying to do the right thing. If they want to have for example like a comprehensive monitoring and reporting framework on plastic production use that requires resource. If they want to pilot and even scale up a reusable and refillable packaging system that requires investment in all of the machinery that would make that happen, the logistics, the staff, the retraining, and then the staff to monitor its implementation. So that's a huge cost. But we see things like reuse and refill as you know, some of the key tools in the toolbox for addressing plastic pollution. And it shouldn't really be on you know, individual retailers to be coming up with and designing a system for something which then they're implementing in isolation. Things like reusable packaging could have standards, which means that you could get your packaging from Tesco but return it to Sainsbury's, just as an example. But that's not in place because there isn't that policy framework to support that. There's a lot to do, isn't there? But for now, Christina <laughs> Dixon from the EIA. Thank you very much. Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson has been talking with a number of farmers. And coming up now is a conversation with Akina Samuel, a smallholder coffee farmer in Uganda. Could you possibly tell me the kinds of crops that you farm and a little bit more about yourself? My name is Akina Samuel. I am a smallholder farmer in Bududa district that is in Uganda. We are located in Uganda on Mount Slopes of Mount Elgon. On my farm, I have coffee, bananas, beans, and two animals. I just wanted to know how your farm might have been impacted by more extreme weather patterns or events over the last few years. Really being a farmer, I would say that I am a victim of the environment, what we call the climate change. I think we are the most people who are mainly affected because we are dealing directly with farming. For example, in my farm, 
Uh, right now, we have so many diseases. We have diseases and pests which have come as a result of climate change. We have also seen that we have quality and quality production has been reduced. Yeah, What we are producing right now, they have been affected. We also have the low incomes, that is to say, increased. this one has increased the poverty. In Gududa here, because of that, we also have mudslides, floods, ETC. This has been common, especially in Gududa here, where we are. As a result of this, we also have hunger, famine, food security has been tempered. Yeah, these are some of the things which are really affecting us as a farmer, have really affected me as a farmer. Are you able to adapt to the less predictable seasons and weather patterns or some of these issues? Have you found ways to overcome them? Actually, we don't just sit and wish, but at least you have to to be innovative. And one of the things we are trying to see that we come up with this, with the solution, is, for example, we are doing what we call early planning. You do the early planning. That is timely. You have to do timely planting. There is also promotion, like on my farm. I'm also promoting what we call agroforestry. When you talk of agroforestry, this is a small piece of land whereby you have trees, you have animals, you have people, but you are living together. So we are promoting agroforestry. That is to say we are planting. I'm planting some trees, for example, like albizia, cordio. These are some ficus. These are some of traditional trees. I'm doing that. I told you I have a dire animal and they know what the animal does. Of course, it is also helping me to see that I can also come over this. We are also taking advice, one of the weather forecasts from the meteorology departments or authority. We have them in Uganda and normally they used to give us some tips whereby I can also follow and do the right thing. We planned on my farm, we do what we call planting resistant and quick maturing plants. For example, this coffee, it is not like the coffee which my father used to grow. Resistant, we have now the resistant crops which can resist with this hot climate. There is also what we call, I am practicing what we call good agronomic practices on my farm. With this, I mean I have contours, I have trenches, I have terraces, I'm doing mulching, all these organic fertilizers. I'm also doing irrigation and insurance. These are some of the medication measures I'm putting in place. I was wondering also how you think that other actors in the supply chain, including maybe the businesses who buy your coffee or your bananas, could help to support you to continue to overcome these unpredictable patterns. Wow. You know, climate change is a collective responsibility. And for sure, we need each and everybody. Whether you are big, small, lame, black, brown, red, yellow, etc., uneducated, educated, but we need to come together to address. Everybody has a role. So my appeal, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I think my appeal now goes straight to people who are also in our value chain. I think what we need, they should support us with something like grants or loans, whereby we can do what we call promoting the world. I talked of the agroforestry. These things, they need money. They need some support. If they can help us, and then we come up with agroforestry, we plant more trees, it is so beautiful. I talked of irrigation. Irrigation systems are very expensive, but if they can help us, it will be very, very interesting. Talk about training in agronomy. Eh? We need some trainings 
some information when if they can post harvest handling we also need some structures eg solar greenhouses like for example in coffee we are suffering with coffee but because you know when it rains here there's too much coldness there's no way you can dry the coffee so that you can get the good quality coffee but if our people who are in the same valley chain if they come come up they give us some of the solar like solar greenhouses fermentation tanks raised tables trays i think we shall be very grateful thank you wikinia samuel from bushka integrated area cooperative it's been great to hear a bit more about the climate change impacts that you're facing and the ways in which you're adapting and hoping to adapt thank you the Innovation Forum website is as ever the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Look out for the first in a series of content pieces we'll be publishing over the coming weeks in partnership with palm oil business Sign Garvey Plantation, first one on human rights protection. And a reminder that the next in our free webinar series looking at how carbon projects help enhance local community human rights is now open for registration. We'll be back with the Monday briefing next week and the podcast as usual. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next time, goodbye.